This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. It is Friday. We have just about made it. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Uh, Alex Steele is over in New York. European equities uh, broadly higher through the close. They're actually higher on the week as well. The FTSE 100 finished at 73.58. Uh, the pound positive today as well against the dollar. We're up by around six tenths of one percent. Last time I checked, we were trading circa 119. But Alex, the damage is being done in the crude market. Yeah. Brent crude is down by nearly four percent. WTI crude on your side of the Atlantic down by over 4%. Yeah, and then just in the last five days, it's been hit incredibly hard, which is just so confusing. I mean, WTI is down 12%, um, and it's hard to see the catalyst for that. So if you take a look at, say, the yield curve, if we the flatter we go, the more we invert. Is there a recessionary risk there? Yeah, but that feels still like a stretch. I don't know. I think there's some positioning going on here, which would also explain some other things in different markets. We'll come back. We'll talk more about this. Of course, we're going to talk more about Obvious. this. It's the oil market, obviously. Yeah. Um, before we do all of that, we need to talk as well about what's happening uh, with the uh, the central bank story. Uh, we heard from Christine Lagarde today, sounding very, very hawkish. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, before we do that, though, here's Charlie Pellet with some headlines. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Civil servants in the UK plan to strike over pay, pensions and job security, threatening to derail the Christmas holidays with borders, ports, and all areas of transport affected. The striking workers represented by the PCS union will include those who work at the border force across the Department for Transport and in all areas of transport. The union says its demand for a 10% pay rise along with other requests had not been addressed by the cabinet office. As meta platforms, Twitter and other leaders of the so-called new economy embark on an unprecedented round of firings, Old-school companies are waiting with open arms. Luxury car maker Jaguar Land Rover says it wants to hire about 800 tech workers to power its growth in fields ranging from autonomous driving to artificial intelligence, electrification, and machine learning. And Barclays is offering support for laid-off workers looking to start new fintech businesses and hopes to fill some of its thousands of technology job vacancies. The organizers behind the World Cup in Qatar have banned the sale of alcohol within stadium grounds, dramatically reversing a decision to allow Anheuser-Busch InBev to sell Budweiser beer. The football tournament, typically the world's largest sporting event and a decade in the making, kicks off Sunday with hosts taking on Ecuador. FIFA, which gets millions of pounds from AB InBev for exclusive rights to sell Budweiser at the World Cup, confirmed alcohol will only be allowed in fan zones and not within stadiums unless you have paid thousands of pounds for private hospitality suites. That is the latest from the news desk. Sky Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Charlie will be back in around 30 minutes to talk more about what is happening at the World Cup, absolutely front and centre, though I'd like to say uh, that the England rugby team play the Kiwis, the All Blacks, on Saturday. Quite looking forward to that game as well. Big week of, big, big week of sport coming up. Big few weeks of sport coming Sports. up. Sports. Sports. Yeah, Alex doesn't really do sports. No, no, um, really but I'll be here. 
to talk about it. Um, let's talk about central banks and uh, what is going on there. Uh, the Bank of England firmly in focus. Uh, yesterday, we saw, obviously, um, a, a very hawkish sounding Fed official in the form of Jim Bullard talking about the fact that the, uh, the, the, uh, the Fed may need to go between 5 and 7% uh, before it stops raising rates. Today, though, in Frankfurt, uh, we heard from the ECB, the European Central Bank's president, Christine Lagarde, I thought sounding equally hawkish. We expect to raise rates further. And withdrawing accommodation may not be enough. Ultimately, we will raise rates to levels that bring inflation back down to our medium-term target in a timely manner. As I explained recently, how far we need to go, how fast, will be determined by the inflation outlook. Christine Lagarde speaking earlier in Frankfurt. She's basically saying, even if we get a recession, we're going to have to continue to still hike. Uh, we are going to we're going to make sure that we get inflation back down to target. Others are not so convinced. Others are increasingly of the view that the ECB, the governing council, is about to make a policy mistake. Earlier, Alex and I caught up with Peter Orzag from Lazard. The question for the ECB is, do you really want to be tightening so so much and then have to reverse yourself in 2023. A lot of the inflation in Europe is driven by energy and food, which is really not um, that amenable to the effects of monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I share the concern that I think was behind your question, which is that the European economy in particular, and especially Germany, uh, is in you know is in a state of weakness, and it, I, I don't think it needs a dose of uh, medicine from the ECB right now. Let's talk to Bloomberg's economics editor, Zoe Schneeweiss, about all of this. Zoe, um, the ECB sounds very, very hawkish right now. Christine Lagarde is making it clear uh, that in December, the ECB is going to have to continue to step on the brake. What is she trying to signal about how big a rate hike we're likely to get? She says we're going to have to hike even through a recession. What does that tell us about what we're going to be getting from the ECB in December? Yes, the big question for December, obviously, is would there be another 75 basis point hike? As we know, the ECB at the last two meetings already did 75 basis points each. Or if they will go back to 50, which is what they kicked off their rate hike um, cycle off um, um, in in July. So um, right now, the signal actually is that 50 probably looks more likely. If you look at market pricing, markets also are expecting 50. And whereas after the October rate decision, sorry, sorry, after the September rate decision, we saw very strong, everyone saying 75, 75, 75, all the usual hawks have been fairly quiet. They've said, yes, we need to do more, but Mm -hmm. there hasn't been all this commitment to 75. So 50, which again, in normal times would be a huge rate hike, 50 also is quite possible. I don't understand how they continue, though, to make the case for continued hikes when they say a recession isn't going to be enough to tamp down demand. So either they have to go way overboard, or again, they're trying to attack something that can't be fixed. Their point is it's not so much about the current level of inflation. It's about the longer-term outlook. So, so sentiment, have, basically. It's about sentiment. Mm-hmm. It's also about what people are expecting towards, what, as they call it, the end of the forecast horizon. Right now, they have, a forecast, they have their forecast until the end of 2024. In this, um, December, we're getting the forecast until the end of 2025. And 
at the, at the end of that forecast horizon, they want the number to be about 2%. So the issue is not, is not so much that right now they're aware. They can't do anything about those high, higher energy prices, about these high food prices. What they can, though, do is get employees to say, actually, with my wages, I am not expecting my wages to match inflation. I am... I am not the second round effects that they, these don't happen, and that's what they're trying to signal here. So they do. There is economically, this does make yep. sense what they're doing, and it does take a while. The question is though, hiking into recession, how controversial will that be? If I am hurt, if I am hurting economically, if then I even have to pay even more, that might not go that well with households, and also how when they will stop. So they've got a rate decision now in December, then they have nothing to February, March. Then, again, they have something in May and June. So would they hike at each of these? And how would they do it when, really, when the country is hurt, when when the economy is hurting? Zoe, thanks for stepping in and updating us. We really appreciate it. Zoe Schneeweiss, um, Bloomberg's economics editor, uh, joining us from Frankfurt. Alex, this is going to be a really key question. It's going to be a similar question for the Bank of England as well. Are they prepared really Mm-hmm. to tighten through a recession. Mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of pain coming from European consumers. There's a lot of pain coming from the European economy. Yeah. And then, when, the ECB, yep. and then when do you transition from worrying about inflation to worrying about growth? We're clearly not there, but does the ECB tilt us that way? I don't know. I wonder if that's the question. Anyway, we're next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. The UK economy is clearly in a very difficult place right now. But yesterday's autumn statement poses some really big challenges for the Bank of England. A lot of the pain that was delivered in that autumn statement for the consumer, for the economy, is going to come after the 2024 election. And for the Bank of England, that's an issue. What the Bank of England would like to see right now is fiscal policy doing some of the heavy lifting and slowing the economy down and bringing inflation under control. The Chancellor talked about that desire yesterday but actually didn't deliver much of it. As a result of which, George Buckley, over at Nomura, their chief economist, believes that the Bank of England in December, another central bank, is going to have to deliver a 75 basis point hike. The real question here again is, how steep is the downturn going to be? And why have the Bank of England and the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, got different forecasts for how long the downturn is going to last? These are going to be critical for the Bank of England uh, to deal with. Now, earlier we caught up with George to get his take. The OBR is not as pessimistic as the Bank of England. The bank sees a a longer uh, recession. It also, I mean, look at the unemployment rates. The Office of Budget Responsibility does not uh, see the uh, unemployment rate breaching 5%. The Bank of England thinks it'll get to 65 So there's very big differences between their forecasts. You know, look at also inflation. The, the Bank of England sees inflation falling very sharply indeed in response to a big negative output gap um, to, towards the end of its forecast horizon. So it sees inflation being pulled down to zero, or certainly between zero and 1%, depending on whether you condition these things on, um, on market interest rates or constant interest rates, but certainly the bank is very pessimistic and it sees that coming through in lower inflation ultimately. And of course, that will be a, 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 a big input into their into their thinking about what they do on interest rates. George, how is the UK consumer, in your scenario, expected to behave as we work our way through this crisis? How much retrenchment are we going to see? How are savings going to be spent? What is your base case? 
Well, we, we saw a bit of evidence on that this morning with the retail sales numbers. Yep. They, they, they did rise a little bit. But if you look at non-food spending, retail sales have fallen pretty, pretty sharp. Uh, over the course of the last year. And I think that's important. It probably tells you a couple of things. One is it says that when you have very high rates of inflation and you have very low levels of consumer confidence, something else we got this morning it might have rebounded a bit, but confidence is on its knees, then retail sales are going to get affected. But there are also positive reasons why retail sales might be down. And one, one, of, one of them is that there is this switch going on between good spending towards services. People have been waiting a while during the pandemic to get out and spend money on services. Mm -hmm. They haven't been able to. They spent on goods. But now that switch is happening in the other direction. Retail sales measures primarily goods. So when you see retail sales fall, it might not just be for bad reasons. It could be because of this switch going on as well. That was George Buckley, Chief UK and Euro Area Economist for Nomura. So, so this just goes to the same problem that I'm having here in the US. We just do not know how human beings are reacting to this enormously high inflation and the money that they have. We have no idea if they're going to be saving it for the bills, if they're going to be trading down, or if they're going to still go for massages, but they're not going to buy a dishwasher. We, we, we literally don't know. And from an economic level, a central bank level, a political level, and then an, from a stock picker level, that's going to dictate every choice that you make. Are we going to find out next Friday? Like, isn't isn't next Friday the big shopping event for you guys? Everybody's going to be piling out, spending tons of money, or not? Yeah, but that's the point: is that that would imply that you're still going to go buy stuff. What if you're going to go get a massage instead, or you're still going to spend on a trip? No, you're not going to do that, that on Black Friday. And then to George's point, um, that's exactly what what may not being captured in the retail sales data. Yeah, but but it's going to be interesting. So. How people spend money, I think, is going to be interesting as well. Um, do you go shopping and then go and get a burger on the back of it? Do you? I, I, I'm just wondering how this whole sort of process unfolds, and whether or not people are going to cut back at the margin. Yeah, I'm laughing at you because no one goes shopping and then gets a burger. You go shopping and then maybe you go and you get a little prosecco, you get a little treat, maybe coffee. You clearly don't have two boys. Maybe, well, yeah, but they're not the ones going shopping. <laughs> they go shopping. If you want to take them shopping, you then have to feed them. Well, yeah, you have to bribe them. I have to bribe my kid with toys. So just to get keep it. them, keep them smiling. Oh to, no, fair yeah. enough. Now my kid needs toys. All right, this is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to the Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So something that stealthily happened this week was the decimation of the crude market. You have Brent off by 10% on five days, WTI off by over 11% in five days. The losses just keep ticking up, and I'm not 100% sure why. Um, Fernando Valle joins us at Bloomberg Intelligence, who has his pulse in the oil market. Fernando, why is this happening? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I think there's uh, more to do with technicals. We've seen uh, a reduction in overall financial positions open in oil and gas, uh, and it necessarily has to, fund uh, to do with fundamentals. If you look just on, on Wednesday, we had uh, U.S. inventories dropped by 9.5 million barrels, uh, including the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and uh, demand has really been uh, much better than anticipated. So uh, on the fundamental side, uh, it's not really speaking to what, how oil is, is uh is behaving now. So it looks to be much more of a technical issue than it is necessarily fundamentals. How do you think, though, those in charge 
of the oil market or nationally in charge of the oil market will respond. How do you think OPEC's going to be feeling about this? Well, I think they uh, will feel somewhat vindicated by, uh, of uh, cutting their production allocations by uh, 2 million barrels a day. Um, you know, I think when you look at the, the outlook over the, the long term, the, the medium term even, uh, we have China that's, that's supposedly going to reopen and uh, get more consumption going. Uh, we have potentially uh, lower production, not just from, from OPEC Plus, but U.S. shale has been uh, continued to disappoint. So the, the, the balance itself uh, has, is looking tenuous at the, at the very least. So I, I think they are not entirely concerned in the, with the current fluctuation because they see uh, as, it, as it keeps drawing on, uh, a, a scenario that's a lot more constructive to, mm-hmm. to consumption. Do we think that the contango that we're seeing is an aberration? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think. Sorry, uh, jargon alert. I said it. Contango uh, the, means when spot prices are less expensive than prices future out. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think I think so. Just uh, <laughs> it, it, it's just a, a, a factor of the, the sharp movement that we saw now, as opposed to um, to again how the, the curve is. Uh, has behaved in, in recent months. Um, I think once we get a better glimpse of how uh, demand will react to the to the, the more hawkish moves by by, by uh, central banks globally and from China's own economic struggles, then it's a scenario where you could once again be uh, more in the contango camp. Uh, but because the, the the world is still concerned about. Uh, higher interest rates and a uh, potential slowdown in, in, in demand from Europe and China, um, the backwardation makes more sense of, uh, over the, the coming months. In terms of what's happening below the surface within the oil market, is this just a crude story or is, for instance, diesel starting to come down? I, I look at diesel prices on a daily basis. They are very, very elevated here in the UK. We clearly have an issue with diesel shortages. Is this a crew phenomenon or is this a sort of product phenomenon as well that prices are coming down? Uh, it, it's primarily crude, as you alluded to. Uh, the, the diesel side is still very much in a shortage. And I think as we enter the winter season, and, uh, as you, you probably know it as well in the UK, the, the weather has started to change as well after a very balmy October in early November. Um, and that's that's important because if you look in New England, for example, we, we primarily use uh, diesel as heat, as a heating source. Mm-hmm. But we also wind up using uh, diesel and, 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 and fuel oil as uh, for power generation when there is less renewable production. Um, and, and especially now, given the situation in Europe and the energy crisis that it's facing, uh, we think that the, the, the margins for diesel can continue to to push higher uh, as we see further drawdowns that, that bring inventories uh, much, much lower. Um, yeah. We did have some positive n- numbers in, in the U.S. In, uh, on Wednesday, but uh, that may be short-lived. Yeah, it's also really cold here right now, I just want to say. Um, and you are front and center and really out months and months before the diesel shortage really hit. Um, Fernando, in terms of U.S. producers, they didn't use the market as a signal before. Are they going to use the market action as a signal now? Um, no, I think at the, for the short term, the, the front month of the curve is really not that significant because typically, uh, especially for the smaller producers and the private producers, you, you're, you're, you're hedging yourself uh, two to three months out. You know, you, it takes 90 days to put a well into production. So 
you, you're typically hedging that production uh, 90 days ahead. So the, the, the spot market is not as significant. And as you pointed, there is a, a, at least a small contango for, for right now. So it doesn't change their capital allocation decisions uh, that drastically. I think the, the biggest concern is really uh, less on the, on the spot market, but more about cost inflation, which, you know, it started to ease a little bit, but we still see very elevated prices for uh, a lot of the inputs that go into, into drilling. And then our view is that the inventories, the, the wells themselves, the locations, aren't as good as were previously expected. And so that is really the main reason why we don't see the growth that was expected um, earlier this year. And we see the EIA, for example, bringing down their estimates for 2022 and 2023. Fernando, we're going to leave you there. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Fernando Valle joining us on what's happening uh, on the oil market. Alex, just explain to me again, Contango backwardation. He's mocking me. He's mocking no, my not, jargon. I genuinely want to know. I, I, Backward, I just, all right, I, let me, I'll explain for you all. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay, yep. so uh, contango is when prices today are more expensive than prices in the future, and that typically signals a really tight market because you're paying up for stuff that you need right now. Um, sorry, that was backwardation. Contango is the opposite. Did I say that already? <laughs> no. He's messing with me. Um, okay, then you have uh, contango is the opposite, when prices today are a little cheaper than prices in the future, which typically signals a softer market. Um, but again, as I made the point to, to, to Fernando, sometimes a signal in the curve has not been correct, necessarily. Um, and you haven't had the same reaction function with producers with it. So just because we're in contango now, I, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're all headed for a disaster and recession. Well, I'm glad that's all clear. That is my Alex plan. You got that. You got that guy, right? I don't know. I, don't know. I, I, think, I, I think at some point in the future, I may need an explaining again. Um, yeah, that was fun. Enjoyed that. Okay, you're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg. You learn something new every day. <laughs> this is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. It's just past 5.30 where you guys are. We've closed for the week. Here in the U.S., though, there's still some trading happening. We're off the lows, but the Nasdaq 100, well, actually, we're about around the lows for the Nasdaq. Nasdaq's down by about six-tenths of 1%. Um, oil's rolling over, which in theory might be good for stocks, but then if it's a recessionary concern, maybe it's bad for stocks. I don't know. It's mixed signals. You know what I mean? Um, you also also, uh, wind up having existing home sales data really rolling over as well. But we also kind of knew um, that that was coming. And within the bond market, you're still seeing the sell-off continue here. You have uh, the two-year up by about five basis points, and the 10-year also up by about five basis points. And that curve inversion continues in a big, 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 big way. That's a quick snapshot uh, of the market. So let's get some more headlines here with Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The International Monetary Fund is praising the UK government's latest fiscal plan a month after the lender criticized tax cuts that had roiled financial markets and sent the pound plunging. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva said on Twitter the new plan, quote, was prepared at a difficult time for the UK economy against strong global headwinds. It strikes the right balance between fiscal responsibility and protecting growth and vulnerable households. Leading researchers say Britain's middle-income households will be hit hardest by an unprecedented 
collapse in living standards, stagnating wages, and tax increases after Chancellor Jeremy Hunt announced his fiscal plan. The Resolution Foundation is warning that the typical UK household will take a permanent 3.7% income hit following an increase in personal taxes. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde says rates may need to be lifted to levels that restrict economic expansion in order to drive down inflation that has rocketed to more than five times its official target. And Pfizer is releasing more evidence that its new COVID vaccine bolsters protective antibodies against the dominant Omicron strains more than the original booster. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. My question is, though, how long it actually lasts. But yeah. anywho. Valid um, point. Yeah. Okay, one of the things that's happening today, Guy, which should be kind of interesting, is uh, we have options expirations. There's about $2.1 trillion of options expiring, so there could be some volatility in certain areas. But overall, individual options for 24 hours, so really short-term options, have been trading like crazy in November. But overall options uh, activity is for the, like the S&P, for example, it's just kind of sad. Like We haven't really seen huge moves. We haven't really moved 1% on the S&P. From uh from the close from the open to the close, uh, pretty much all month. So that's just some interesting dynamics to pay attention to. Absolutely. Um, in some ways, it's weird that volatility hasn't been higher. People mm-hmm. were talking about volatility needs to go. Equity volatility now, bond market volatility and commodity market and FX volatility is actually relatively high right now. Uh, but equity market isn't. Um, and I think there's some weird things going on. People used to call this about call this the fear indicator. I don't think it's working. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, also, it seems volatility is uh, Bitcoin, that transition. Oh, yeah. Sure, we'll go with that. Um, so, the latest from FTX, we're going to get more on that in just a moment. But um, Shanali Basak and I and Guy sat down with Peter Orzag earlier, Lazard Financial Advisory CEO. He's like the restructuring expert. And we just started off um, talking about the implosion of FTX, like what the implication is uh, in the bankruptcy world. FTX may well be very specific to, uh, you know, the things that are coming out over the past few days look quite troubling just from a governance perspective. And uh, I think that speaks to the need for regulation. Um, Clearly, there are other parts of the uh, crypto world that are also under stress and uh, may well need to go through some restructuring. But I don't know that, at least so far, it does not appear like the ripple effects, as you put it, are spreading to other parts of the economy or other parts of the market. So that's the good news. And every day that goes by uh, in which we don't see, you know, the rock under the water, uh, is a good day um, because it means that the ripple effects are not as systemic as uh, one might have feared. Um, but there clearly is a need for regulation in this area. And Shanali Basic uh, joins us now, one of the hardest working people here at Bloomberg Television. Um, hey, Shanali, we have it, the, the whole ripple water rock thing was really poetic, but I'm wondering like, if we're just going to see a lot more waves. I mean, I'm definitely feeling the water storm. <laughs> so, listen, it's the, the point that he's making that he was hinting at here is that uh, there could be more bankruptcies here in the crypto space. Remember, why does that matter? Because the FTX, there's billions of dollars tied up there, right? Uh, there are other companies that have millions more of customer funds as well. And so these are real people losing real money. And these are class action lawsuits flying around. It's definitely not nothing. But the other thing that he was interesting that he had told us in that conversation was that 
listen, you know, you could get upset about what happened in crypto, but this behavior of putting too much leverage, too much borrowing on yeah. companies was a phenomenon of a low interest rate environment, and that's going to come home to roost. Well, let's talk about I, I, I want to come on to that because, like, as you say, it's an absolutely critical point. What I'm surprised at the moment um, when it comes to the, about when it comes to the, the crypto story is that there hasn't been any contagion effects. What I learned in the 2008 crisis was that financial markets are heavily interlinked. And as a result of which, what starts off over there usually ends up at some point over here. Are we just waiting for that to happen? Or is this a contained problem within crypto? We have to watch the situation really, really closely, especially, and we've been talking about this a lot as it pertains to stable coins. Because once we start to see decoupling, then you can start to see some broader, some broader risks to different markets. That's what regulators have been concerned about. But to the point that you're making, and you heard the relief in his voice, yep. there really hasn't been that much of a, a ripple effect here besides a risk-off attitude in certain places. Listen, people forget this. There are plenty of publicly traded stocks that are very closely tied to Bitcoin. And those stocks, Coinbase, Silvergate Bank, the, these firms have seen serious pain in their stocks in the last mm -hmm. couple of days and weeks. Um, Shanali, it feels like where the rubber meets the road, I think I stole that from one of your expressions when you were talking about Goldman, um, is grayscale. It's a trust, it's not an ETF. But but like the grayscale world, is that going to fall? Is that going to bleed? So here's the thing about grayscale. They have an interesting fee structure where they do collect a lot in terms of revenue. So as far as the company itself goes, people are not that concerned about grayscale. And, you know, people can complain about the fees all they want, but, if you know, the argument there is if you don't want to invest, don't pay the fees. But to the point that you're making, they're, they've fallen at a very, very significant discount uh, to their net asset value. And people are very worried about that. You had other people, really, um, there was a Twitter spaces with the CEO of Coinbase just a couple of days ago, and people were saying that people need to st uh, stop using uh, GBTT, this Bitcoin trust, as collateral, and that uh, there were questions to Coinbase about whether they're still holding the Bitcoin for custody for them, and, you know, that I don't know what the ripple effects would be for something like that. But, yeah, questions are certainly being asked, but people are generally feeling yeah. that the company itself is safe. Let's come back to this issue of leverage. Um, there are lots of opaque parts of the financial markets. Um, crypto was maybe a more obvious kind of example of how leverage was being used and how, in Neil Kashkari's words, that there was a lot of nonsense. Um, other parts of the market are more opaque, more difficult to understand, more difficult to get a sense of where the risk lies. Is, are people like Peter Orszag basically looking at what is happening in crypto and saying, there's a lot of leverage still out there at the moment. You think this is limited to crypto, we're going to see it elsewhere. And I'm not talking about a direct connection here. I'm just talking about the fact that mm -hmm. this is a warning. Yes. The, the short answer is yes. Uh, people think that crypto stands alone here. But really, think about private equity. Think about what happened with the pension fund crisis in Europe when we saw the fluctuations in, in, in debt and currency markets there. So leverage has built up not just over a couple of years, but for the last decade. So, of course, there are going to be ramifications. And the flyaway behaviors, think about how investors have just scoured the globe for yields. 
FTX was not just a matter of leverage. FTX was a matter of governance. Why was it that investors were putting their money into a company without any oversight of the assets, mm-hmm. liability, and, and faith on the board? But it, it's but, because mm-hmm. they needed; they were in search of returns that, in fact, were too good to be true. But and but that still, in essence, though, does tie back to the broader leverage situation. In that, if central banks kept rates so low for so long, and you had all this excess liquidity. That's what creates these issues. So the tour, in some ways, it's no surprise that this happened when central banks are draining liquidity so rapidly. And I appreciate that you can't necessarily draw a line from there uh, to Binance. But the idea that there's all this money that can rapidly be drained and then cause all these things to break because no one was expecting them to break because last mm-hmm. 15 years nothing broke, then that's a problem. That's a problem. Let me do another quick line for you. You know, if you were earning nothing in a bank account, by the way, in America, you still aren't. In You're most definitely places. not. Right. And so if, uh, all of these Americans are putting money into Gemini for 8%. So, you know, rock hard place. But to mm-hmm. your point, now interest rates are rising and that behavior is starting to be fleshed out. And this is just the beginning. So are people worried? You talk to a lot of people in in the markets, I, people like Peter Rozak. As you say, he sounded relatively relieved today, I thought. But he, he talks about the Fed making a mistake. He talks about the Bank of England making uh, the, He talks about the ECB making a mistake. Are, are, are people like that starting to get seriously nervous? Crypto is just the start of it. I'll tell you this. I have spent an inordinate amount of time with bankruptcy and restructuring experts in the last week. And we didn't just talk about crypto. We certainly didn't. And so Peter's firm is definitely one of the largest in the world. And they have been saying this for months to me now, that it's not that restructurings are picking up at pace. It's that the conversations about them are, which means their clients are worried about the debt that they're holding, about their future revenue in an inflationary environment. And, uh, you know, the, the sense I get is that they're all skating on ice. If something bad were to happen, then everything can kind of fall through the floor here. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that things are going to go terribly south, but the risk is absolutely there. And by the way, we should also mention this. The distressed debt investors, they're out to play. There's a mm-hmm. whole group of investors here that live for this. And all of those guys right now are also sharpening their pencils right. and are starting to tell me they're seeing an opportunity of their lifetime. Right, because they haven't had it in so long. I feel like the 2015-16, right. they were also talking about that, and that didn't materialize. I'm also wondering if the default cycle that maybe they're they're anticipating will or won't happen. And this kind of ties in weirdly to like the housing market. If companies dealt with their debt better in the last couple years because rates were so low, does that delay the reckoning? Yeah. I mean, it's as simple as that. I think about all you guys have interviewed him with me before, Ken Mollis. He mm-hmm. gives this warning sign about leverage constantly. That It's the oldest story in the book, right? If you don't owe anybody anything, then you know you have a clean balance sheet. <laughs> but the thing is, people got so used, consumers as well as companies, more so companies, frankly, than the consumer if you look at all the data. And that kind of behavior, I don't know how you unwind that. Yeah. This is a really positive conversation, by the way. I'm feeling really, really good about this going into, Sorry, going into the weekend. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's true. I, d- I definitely personally took on a lot more leverage over the last couple of years. Yeah, but and, now, you've and- got, now you've got Jim Bullard talking about 7%. I, the market is in no way ready for 7% mm-hmm. here, is it, Shanali? 
No, the market's not ready for it, and honestly, uh, I don't know that the, the world is. They're, they're, what I know is all the big private credit firms, they're sharpening their pencils mm-hmm. and calculating wow. across corporate America to see how much worth of corporate debt needs to be refinanced in the next couple of years, right. what that'll cost them, and how much that will eat out. Uh, think about it. Every dollar you're paying to refinance your debt is every dollar you're not paying to your employees. Yeah. Another way to look at it. Yep, that, that is another way of looking at it. Before I let you go, is there one sector that these guys are all kind of looking at? Like in, in, in 15 or something, 16, it was like, ooh, energy. Is there one area that everyone's looking at? You know, that's funny because you, there was energy and then there's the retail crisis. Mm-hmm. I would True. say people are looking at property in some areas. But, you know, the reality is it's a geographic question more than a sector one these days. Mm-hmm. And the geographic center here is in Europe. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Now I'm feeling really good. She said Europe. She didn't say UK. She said Europe. Okay, we're still, like, geographically, we're still in Europe. <laughs> I, I know. Gonna, I'm trying to make you feel better. We may have left the EU, but we are definitely geographically in Europe. And I think uh, I think this week has proved many things. Uh, and one of those is that the UK economy is going to have a very tough time of things. I think it's interesting Peter Rosak has opened an office in Germany. He is not positive mm-hmm. about the German economy. Shanali, as Alex says... One of the hardest working people at Bloomberg. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyed that Orzak interview uh, a little earlier on. Bloomberg, Shanali Basak. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, Alex Steele over in New York. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Twitter. I'm slightly concerned that Twitter may not be there on Monday. This follows earlier this week, Elon Musk basically sending out a missive uh, to Twitter staff, basically saying, unless you're up for kind of a hardcore work environment, we're here to fix this thing, then you should step aside. The problem with this strategy is that a lot of staff at Twitter have taken him at his word (laughs) and said, yeah, we're good to go. Thanks very much. Um, And we will be stepping aside. So now the question is, can Twitter keep functioning if it's all its engineers walk out of the door? Let's try and get some answers to this. Bloomberg Technology reporter Alex Borinka joins us now. Alex, do we know how many people are still working at Twitter? We don't know how many people are still working, but it's definitely less than that 3,700 number that was left over after uh, Elon Musk slashed the company in half. If you spent any time on the app yesterday, you saw um, a very specific emoji that's come to kind of represent um, the exodus of people who did not check that, yes, I'm in for hardcore box um, on on. Uh, Elon's email, it's a little salute emoji, a little yellow face saluting on the way out. A lot of those were um, popping up in employee slacks and being posted by folks um, who uh, say they're Twitter employees on Twitter last night. So it seems like a lot of people are not opting in to that offer. But, uh, you know, we just got off a Twitter spaces with some of our colleagues. The app is still running today. I peeked at Down Detector. There's only about a thousand folks um, saying that the app is not working for them. So for all intents and purposes right now, um, Twitter is um, at least half steam ahead. Why would Elon Musk do this? 
it is very true to Elon. So this like hardcore language, we've actually seen this from him before a decade ago at Tesla. He sent a very similar email when that was a small, scrappy company um, trying to kind of fire up employees to be this, you know, up and comer and take on these big car giants. The problem is Twitter's in a very different spot. This is a company that is one of the biggest social media platforms. It's been around for a long time and has a very established culture. So he is bringing in kind of his vibe, his, um, you know, way of working, this kind of focus on, um, you know, myopic intent of your life is just to come in and work and get things done um, at a big pace. This is very true to him. um, But uh, clearly the way that he's acted over, and it's only been three weeks since he's owned this company, over the last three weeks and the steps he's taken to shape this company um, into his vision have not really um, rang favorably with a lot of the talented workers that were already at this company. How low can they go in terms of staffing? Do we have any idea what a skeleton crew actually looks like to keep keep this to keep to keep everything online? So there are reports um, from uh, some of our competitors, like Platformer, saying that they're calling engineers up to, to the floor to kind of figure out who is there. Um, they actually closed the all of Twitter's buildings and restricted badge access yesterday as they're kind of surveying the scene and figuring out who is there. So there are a, key, a few key areas that Elon has identified talking to employees. He said that this will be a, um, a uh, engineering company, engineering-focused company going forward. So those seem to be the people that he is really focused on. Um, The areas that you're seeing some reporting that folks are departing um, that can raise some concern for users or, you know, politicians or governments are things like trust and safety, Mm -hmm. are things like um, content moderation. And we've already had calls from uh, across the world, basically, um, in Europe in particular, uh, saying that we need more moderators in Europe. Um, That was uh, uh, Thierry Breton, the EU's internal market commissioner is already calling on Elon saying, look, these departures are concerning. We need to make sure that this platform, which is which has provided a really critical space for information to flow, um, is, you know, kept up to the standards um, of, uh, of no misinformation and, and not kind of fomenting, um, you know, violence or anything of that sort. Um, are people using Twitter still or how are they using Twitter? People are using Twitter. Um, Elon Musk has uh, taken to Twitter to kind of brag that people are using Twitter more than uh, ever right now because um, the the user numbers have been up over this past week. We're seeing a lot of folks, um, you know, last night doing the good old, um, if this place isn't here, this is a thing I wanted to say to you, um, kind of post reminiscing on the the power of Twitter. So folks are still on it. You're still seeing um, folks posting. What is not happening as often is advertising. A lot of the advertisers have pulled back their spend. They're a little bit worried about what's happening on the platform um, and about kind of uncertainty, uh, which is really bad for advertising. So Elon Musk will brag that um, folks are using Twitter more than ever. I do think that folks should have a little bit of pause over some of that um, braggadociousness because, you know, if you want to keep it at these levels, it, it raises the question of do you need to continue having these big chaotic moments that folks want to kind of tune in and see what's going on. Cool word. Love it. That's the sort of word that Alex would use. The other <laughs> Alex. Um, are we sure he wants to fix it? 
Um, I think that folks are asking that question in a, in a really honest way, um, which is, you know, frankly surprising. I, in a past Bloomberg life, I covered deals for us. I've never seen a situation like this where a new owner or a new CEO has come in and, you know, and there's a kind of a really valid question on the table of like, does he want this to actually succeed in the end or is he, is he trying to kind of either burn it to the ground for whatever reason, maybe to raise it um, back up uh, in his vision? Look, Elon is a guy who we know kind of cares about his legacy, who um, likes to be seen as, as the kind of brilliant, uh, maybe irreverent billionaire. So in the end, I, I would think that he wants this to be a, a successful experiment. We do remember he dragged his feet. He tried not to close right. this acquisition. That was a, a month-long um, kind of dramatic turn before this deal closed. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a very valid question to ask. Today, we don't have that answer, but right. the fact that we're actually asking it, I think it's pretty stunning. Well, because usually we may have a company that's kind of forced to buy another company, but not a person who's like right. forced to buy another company. Um, Alex, always wonderful reporting. Thank you so very much, Alex Branca, joining us um, from Bloomberg. Okay, so we're looking ahead for Twitter, and I'm really excited for Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday, and Black Friday. I love me the shopping. Tomorrow's kind of like, next week's kind of my week. You get World Cup, and I get this. And England are playing New Zealand. Who's going to win? Do, like, England. England. Okay. I, it's the All Blacks, though. So who knows? Anyway, have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs> this is Bloomberg.